Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast. It's me, Jim Hill. This is our show for the week of June 3rd. What's significant about that date is 18 years ago today, Atlantis of the Lost Empire held its Hollywood premiere at the El Capitan Theater. I bring up this Kirk Weiss and Gary Trousdale film, the third and last this directing team did for Disney. The first, of course, being their smash hit Beauty and the Beast, released in theaters back in November of 91. Second being Hunchback of Notre Dame, which was considered a bit of a box office disappointment when it was released back in June of 96. Again, I bring up Atlantis of the Lost Empire because so many Disney Dish listeners seem to enjoy the show that Len and I did back in April of this year, where I then talked about the Atlantean Expedition, which was this proposed replacement for Disneyland's submarine voyage that the Imagineers actually did some in-park on-site testing for back in May of 1998, which reportedly infuriated then-Disneyland President Paul Pressler. And speaking of infuriating, it will probably upset some of you to learn that this is going to be another Len-free episode. Not to worry, though. Mr. Testa will be back next week, hopefully rested and refreshed after consuming all that blue milk while touring Star Wars Galaxy's Edge at Disneyland Park. I would imagine that Mr. Testa is going to have a lot of interesting insights to share once he gets back from Batuu which I think will be sometime next week. But until that happens, let's give a quick shout-out to this podcast's newest subscribers. That's Gojira2019, Luckin Hefner, and R. Jamerson. Not to mention longtime Disney Dish subscribers, uh, Robert S., Laura Z., and Brian F. Uh, here's a fun fact for all of you. Back when Walt Disney Imagineering was trying to settle on the perfect shade for Blue Milk, Gojira 2019, Luff and R. Jamerson supposedly sat in on that focus group, as did Robert S., Laura Z., and Brian F. I'm told that Gojira 2019, Luff and R. Jamerson were really pulling for a Blue Milk to be more cerulean, you know, that shade that sits in the color wheel between azure and blue sky. Whereas Robert S., Laura Z., and Brian F., they wanted WDI to go with more of a cornflower, robin's egg, blue kind of a thing. Me, I'm more of a teal man. But then that would have made the blue milk look too much like the green milk, which, by the way, uh, I've been hearing particularly strong reactions uh, from members of the Star Wars community when it comes to that beverage. From what I hear, there were a handful of folks who actually liked the taste of green milk. But then again, there's a far larger group of people who are balking at paying $8 a glass for a beverage, which one unnamed contributor to the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network described as tasting like your cat first ate Chinese food. And then, well, now, all right, let's just leave it at that. Okay, which I'm pretty sure is not the sort of word of mouth that WDI wants when they were developing green milk. And speaking of word of mouth, did I tell you that today's edition of this podcast is being brought to you by Storybook Destinations, the trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. Tammy and the team of Storybook Destinations are always cooking up fun adventures for Disney park and resort fans. Take, for example, the Disney Cruise Line Cruise with Scott Sanders of the DisneyCruiseLineBlog.com. It's a four-night bohemian cruise on the Disney Dream that departs on June 19th, then then returns on June 23rd after making two stops at Castaway Key, which sounds like great fun to me. And at no time will the Disney Dream suddenly be plunging to the bottom of the sea so that guests can then visit Atlantis the Lost Empire. That's just a movie, folks. One that was conceived, if you can believe it, at a Mexican restaurant back in October of 1996 in Burbank, California. 
Okay, picture this. By the way, folks, I got this story directly from Don Hahn. He's the was the producer of all three of Kirk Weiss and Gary Trosdale's uh, three movies for Walt Disney Studios. Anyway, it's roughly four months after Disney's Hunchback of Notre Dame has been released to theaters. And as I mentioned earlier, this Walt Disney Pictures release was something of a box office disappointment. So, Don, Gary, and Kirk are commiserating over a picture of margaritas and some guacamole. They're discussing what sort of movie they want to make next for Walt Disney Animation Studios, and Weiss and Trilesdale are pretty emphatic about how, after doing Beauty and the Beast and the Hunchback, they really don't want to do another musical. They want to do something different this time, which is fine by Don. As Don once told me, you know, virtually every time Walt Disney Animation Studios makes a movie, it's the sort of film that inspires the creation of ride shows and attractions that can then be placed in the fantasy land section of Disneyland. And as I told Kirk and Gary, wouldn't it be cool if just once, instead of always going straight through Sleeping Beauty Castle as we started our story, we then took a left instead and then, say, walked under the Adventureland Arch, told a story that would inspire the creation of a ride show and attraction for that side of the park? This idea of Don's, it didn't just excite Weiss and Trousdale, it also excited the guys at WDI. After all, the last Walt Disney produced film that easily lent itself to the creation of Adventureland Attraction had been Swiss Family Robinson, with the studio had released to theaters in December of 1960. It wouldn't be till two years later, November 18th, 1962 to be exact, that the Swiss Family Treehouse would open in the Adventureland section of Disneyland Park. Uh, the 70-foot-tall faux tree quickly became a favorite hangout of future Imagineer Bruce Gordon, uh, largely because there were several places high up in this 150-ton structure where you could look straight down into the New Orleans Square construction site and then keep tabs on what was going on with Rogue's Gallery, which was, of course, what Pirates of the Caribbean was called early on, back when this Disneyland attraction was supposed to be a walk-through experience rather than an actual ride. Anyway, getting back to the Atlantis movie project now. As Weiss, Trousdale, and Hahn began developing their big action-adventure film for Walt Disney Animation Studios, they added Tab Murphy to that film's creative team. He'd previously worked on the screenplay for the last movie Kirk, Gary, and Don had done for Disney, uh, 1996's Hunchback, and Murphy's more recent assignment was working on the screenplay for Disney's animated Tarzan. Anyways, Weiss, Trousdale, Hahn, and now Murphy are spitballing ideas for their animated action-adventure film, they began talking about the Disney films that they loved as a kid, and those included 1954's 2000, or 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, 1962's In Search of the Castaway, and 1974's Island at the Top of the World. But Kirk, Gary, Don, and Tab were also enthusiasts of Ray Harryhausen's work, and movies like 1958's Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, 1961's Mysterious Island, and let's not forget the 1963's Jason and the Argonauts, or the two other Sinbad movies that Ray did, 1973's The Golden Voyage of Sinbad, and 1977's Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. Anyway, Weiss, Trousdale, Hahn, and Murphy decided to take elements from all of these films, uh, we're talking the submarine from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, the pre-World War setting for Island at the Top of the World, the ruins of Atlantis that were glimpsed in Mysterious Island, and all of those oversized stop-motion monsters that pop up in the Sinbad movies and Jason and the Argonauts, and, and then fold in a dollop of Journey to the Center of the Earth, that James Mason movie from December of 59, and 
with the end result being sort of this ultimate Walt Disney meets Ray Harryhausen movie. And Kirk, Gary, Don, and Tab had really planned to lean in heavily into the Ray Harryhausen mythos. The original plan for Atlantis was this action-adventure animated film would have the explorers, on the course of their journey to the center of the Earth, to Atlantis, um, they'd encounter four separate enormous monsters that would each represent one of the four elements, Earth, Wind, Fire, and Water. Now, I don't need to tell you which one was the water monster. That was obviously the Leviathan, the giant mechanical lobster creature, which guarded the undersea entrance to Atlantis and then destroyed the Ulysses, the, the, the sub, when that sub got too close to the entrance to Atlantis. And you actually get a quick glimpse of the wind monster uh, that was to be featured in a big action sequence in this movie. It's in that montage of Milo leading the explorers through the system of tunnels under the earth as they head to Atlantis. But as for the fire monster and the earth monster, well, January of 1999, Peter Schneider, the then head of Walt Disney Animation Studios, was promoted to the presidency of Walt Disney Studios. So he, he's now in charge of live action. And given that someone had to replace Peter as the head of Walt Disney Animation Studios, his longtime loyal lieutenant, Thomas Schumacher, who was just coming off of helping Julie Taymor mount the uh, Tony Award-winning version of Disney's Lion King for Broadway, um, he was not only made the new president of Walt Disney Animation Studios, but also the president of Disney Theatrical Productions, the folks who would be handling Disney shows for Broadway. And when Kirk, Gary, Don, and Tab had their first meeting with their new boss, they told Thomas Schumacher that they envisioned Atlantis as the ultimate Walt Disney meets Ray Harryhausen movie. Unfortunately, Schumacher's first question in this creative team was supposedly, who's Ray Harryhausen? Seriously, Thomas reportedly had no idea who this master of stop-motion animation was, which, Don told me, should have been a really big red flag that making Atlantis the way Kurt, Gary, and Tab had wanted to make this movie was going to be extremely tough while Thomas was in charge of Walt Disney Animation Studios. More to the point, Schumacher seemed to have never seen Jason and the Argonauts, or for that matter, any of the Sinbad movies, so he really didn't get the significance of all these monsters that these explorers were encountering as they made their way deep under the earth to Atlantis, and all these monsters the explorers are supposed to encounter, Thomas said, are needlessly slowing down their trip to Atlantis. The movie is called Atlantis, The Lost Empire, not all of the monsters they meet along the way. We need to get these explorers to Atlantis faster. That's what the audience really wants to see in this movie. The explorers discovering this lost civilization. Not them fighting a bunch of monsters in dark caves. You can keep the Leviathan, but all the other monsters have to go, okay? Just to be clear here, this is not how the Imagineers saw Atlantis the Lost Empire. They just I absolutely loved the earth, wind, fire, and water monsters that Kirk, Gary, Don, and Tab had dreamed up for this Walt Disney Animation Studios production. So much so that for the transforming roller coaster that they designed for Fire Mountain, as you pulled out of the station uh, and headed into the attraction, the very first thing you encountered with this giant rock formation, which, you know, actually looked like 
a dragon frozen in, in mid snarl and the way you entered you know the 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 main ride complex of fire mountain is you your, your car literally you know went into the mouth of this this rock faced dragon what's fire mountain <laughs> okay well you get back for commercial break i'll then explain about this proposed addition to the magic kingdom at walt disney world one that would have significantly changed the view that guests had as they looked out uh, from Disney's Polynesian Village Resort across Seven Seas Lagoon. And we're back. Before we get started here, I need to remind you of a few dates. Let's remember that Kirk, Gary, Don, and Tab cooked up their main concept for Atlantis the Lost Empire back in October of 1996. Uh, again, Mexican restaurant Burbank. And the Imagineers must have loved that key concept for this proposed action-adventure animated film because by May of 1998, just 20 months after this Walt Disney Animation Studios project was originally conceived, WDI is in Disneyland Park running tests for the Atlantean Encounter, which the Imagineers eventually hope to someday make as a replacement for the uh, subs in Tomorrowland at that theme park. See, that was the thing. Even though Don Hahn had originally pitched Atlantis the Lost Empire, uh, you know, this Walt Disney Animation Studios that wouldn't begin, uh, that wouldn't take moviegoers through Sleeping Beauty Castle, but but uh, I'd take them through the Adventureland Arch. But, but here's the thing. At the actual Disneyland Park, this wasn't an option because of the Indiana Jones adventure. Uh, that motion-based simulator Jeep-driven attraction, uh, when that first opened to the public back in March of 1995, that was pretty much all, all she wrote for this theme park's Adventureland area. Construction of Indiana Jones Adventure had sucked up basically all of the available land in this corner of Disneyland. In fact, really, honestly, in order to get this built, they had to go out into the Disneyland parking lot. That's, in fact, why they have the Eeyore sign inside the the queue space to sort of pay tribute that they ate a chunk of the parking lot to make this ride. This is why when the Imagineers were looking for spots for attractions based on Atlantis the Lost Empire at Disneyland, they pivoted to Tomorrowland, uh, particularly to Disneyland Submarine Voyage, which had opened back in July of 1959 and was long overdue for retheming. Whereas Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom, that theme park didn't have an Indiana Jones adventure attraction in its Adventureland section because back in the late 1980s, uh, WDI decided, at least as far as Central Florida was concerned, all Lucasfilm-related ride shows and attractions would be located inside of Disney MGM Studios theme park. Well, because that was the Disney theme park that celebrated the history of Hollywood, the best of television and movies and such. Uh, and more to the point, because the Magic Kingdom hadn't done what Disneyland Park did, which was build a path all the way out from, again, you know, along the shore of the Jungle Cruise, you know, uh, that would then allow the Imagineers to take guests outside of the berm of that theme park, beyond the train track and the perimeter road that uh, you know, circled Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom, they could, in fact, now build a massive show building right at the edge of Seven Seas Lagoon. And not just any show building. They could build this magnificent full volcano that would then house the Magic Kingdom's Fire Mountain ride. And 
And why did they call this particular proposed theme park attraction Fire Mountain, you ask? Because every once in a while, the volcano on top of this show building would periodically belch smoke and balls of fire. Which sounds cool, but, but you have to understand that by having the volcano on top of Fire Mountain show building belch smoke and fire, the Imagineers were just building on work that they'd already done for Mount Prometheus, which was the icon of Tokyo Disney Seas, the theme park which was slated up along, alongside of Tokyo Bay uh, in September of 2001. Okay, uh, all right. As I mentioned, Disneyland Park did its in-park tests of the Atlantean Encounter in May of 1998, whereas Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom, well, the plans for this for the proposed Fire Mountain ride show dates like June 16, 1999, which is significant. Um, what's significant about that date is Universal's Islands of Adventure opened in May of 1999. And, you know, and Disney executives were supposedly so concerned about Universal Orlando's second gate siphoning off would-be visitors to the Walt Disney World Resort that they were actually prepping a series of major ride shows and attractions for all four of the company's Central Florida theme parks, just in case the company needed to move quickly in response to the smashing success of Universal's Island Adventure. Okay, so they prepped these plans. So how, you know, what exactly was Fire Mountain supposed to be like? Okay, here's the project's creative intent document. Uh, again, published in June of 1999. This was something that was made available to executives at parks and resorts to, you know, sort of bring them up to speed about, this is what we're thinking of building at the kingdom. And this is how it's described. Inspired by the feature animation adventure Atlantis, okay, uh, let's quick stop here, please notice that's Atlantis, not Atlantis, the lost empire. <laughs> Again, that's that's another one of those ways that Tone, uh, Thomas Schumacher fixed Atlantis. You know, it's like, you know, just the the notion that it needed to, you know, to, to explain to audiences. They to, Just saying Atlantis, they wouldn't understand what the movie was. But if it, had a, it was called Atlantis, the Lost Empire. It's like, oh, now I understand. Let's go buy a ticket, kids. Okay, anyway, back to the description. Atlantis, which is currently scheduled for release in 2001, Fire Mountain delivers a heart-pounding journey into an environment that no one has ever seen before, let alone survived. Rising ominously above Adventureland, Fire Mountain suddenly erupts, sending unsuspecting travelers en route to Atlantis on an emergency detour through the heart of a fiery volcano. The attraction story, which is described as a sequel to the film, first they give you sort of a bullet points of what the, uh, the story of the film was. In 1914, billionaire Preston Whitmore financed an expedition to honor the lifelong dream of a dear departed friend to prove that the city of Atlantis exists. Guided by an ancient shepherd's journal, the Whitmore expedition does indeed find Atlantis, but the discovery does not come without a multitude of unusual hardships, including having to escape an erupting volcano. The year now is 1916. To prove to the world that Atlantis is real, Whitmore Industries has created an amazing transportation system that will not only retrace the original route of discovery, but enlists the help of the experienced folks and their expertise, uh, some of the surviving members of the original expedition. 
And now those daring enough to step on board and make this adventurous journey will have the opportunity to discover Atlantis for themselves. As to how you're supposed to reach Firemont, we'll picture this. You're walking through Adventureland. The Sunshine Pavilion and the Enchanted Tiki Room are on your right, directly ahead of you is Caribbean Plaza, and you know that sort of clock towery thing at the corner of the Caribbean parts of the Caribbean show building. When you reach the tower, you were supposed to take a hard left. You know, right now there's just a fence, uh, the cast members' own area, but but picture this, there would have been this heavily wooded path taking you in the direction of Seven Seas Lagoon. You'd have the parts of the Caribbean show building on your right and the jungle cruise directly to your left. Uh, according to the Fire Mountain site plan, this new walkway was called the Access Path from the Promenade, and it was supposed to have been 1,492 square feet. Okay, this pass through the dense brush uh, via a pair of bridges takes you over the tracks of the Walt Disney World Railroad, as well as the Magic King's Perimeter Road. And you finally arrive at this clearing in the jungle where you're surrounded by the tents and mining equipment that make up the Whitmore Industries Base Camp. Uh, this is an area 16,304 square feet. Uh, and one of the larger tent-like structures here houses the Base Camp's Visitor Center. Uh, this was where the pre-show for Fire Mountain was supposed to be housed in a, a 10,742 square foot building. The show building that housed Fire Mountain itself was massive. I mean, we're talking 73,642 square feet. And to, to put that in perspective, Walt well, Disney World's version of Space Mountain is only 7,200 square feet. All right. So, you know, it, in fact, there, there were a lot of people at Imagineering who worked very hard on the idea that they wanted, if you were, say, over at the Ticket and Transportation Center, you, the interesting thing is that the Magic Kingdom would be bookended. You'd have Cinderella Castle dead center. To your right, you could see the, the spires and the, the, the size of Space Mountain. And then to your left, looming over uh, Adventureland, almost the same size, uh, or virtually the same size as uh, Space Mountain would be Fire Mountain. So again, you had a nice balanced view, so to speak. All right. Um, so anyway, we, we talked previously about how, you know, as you left the, the load station inside of Fire Mountain, uh, you would have, you know, your, your coaster would have plunged into the mouth of this rock face that looked like a dragon in mid-snarl. But you may remember when I was talking about this earlier, I used the phrase transforming coaster. And this is where um, this is where Fire Mountain went from really fun to amazing. Because the gimmick was that as you were riding through the attraction, picture this, you're, you're sitting in your standard uh, a roller coaster seat, you know, with uh, the uh, overhead straps holding you in place. But, you know, as you're headed up the load hill, the mountain erupts. This is a tremendous background noise and the mountain seems to shake and as the mountain is shaking it feels like your coaster car is coming apart. And it is kind of because it's transforming. It What's happening is that the bench seat you're sitting in gradually rotates so now you're in a downward facing position. I mean, if you, I don't know how many of you folks have been over to SeaWorld and experienced Manta 
where you know you basically it's a flying coaster where you're flying face down but as you reach the top of the the load hill by the time you you know the the volcano's in full eruption and your seat has been shaken by the this you know this earthquake that's happening with the eruption and you're not facing downward and you now zoom through the mountain face down and well imagine this this is a description of scene eight in fire mountain and this is pulled directly from the creative content document and the scene is called let's just cut to the chase into the volcano all right so guests who are now facing downward in their coaster seat fly over the center or fly through the center of the mountain towards fiery fountains of lava after a sudden turn guests enter a tunnel filled with stalactite and stalagmites then flip 120 degrees and race dangerously close to the cavern wall dropping out of this arc guests careen into another cavern that spills them out into the heart of the volcano okay now we've mentioned the indiana jones adventure at disneyland park earlier in today's show what fire mountain at walt disney world's magic kingdom and the indiana jones at disneyland park were supposed to have in common was a big central room that guests would continually sort of circle back into and but as they did they'd see new scenes or or new shallow show elements so for the into the volcano scene in fire mountain the setting for the scene in the attraction was supposed to feature this is the punch list by the way numerous lava geysers or excuse me numerous lava geysers and fire effects volcano background noise as well as carved atlantean hieroglyphics all over the walls this sounds like a pretty amazing attraction don't you think so why didn't fire mountain get built at walt disney world's magic kingdom three reasons actually um thomas schumacher the then head of walt disney animation studios as we explained didn't really understand the sort of movie that kirk weiss gary trousdale don Hahn, and tab murphy were trying to make here so <laughs> thomas kept giving kirk gary don and tab notes and insisting that they make changes to this animated film that ultimately really weakened the production um made it not all that entertaining and a motion picture and as a direct result, Atlantis The Lost Empire did poorly at the box office, barely recovering its, its $110 million production costs. Consequently, Walt Disney Parks and Resorts wasn't willing to spend tens of millions of dollars to, to build an attraction for the theme parks that would have been based on, on characters and storylines from a flop. And, and this, this thing, actually, this, it's the same thing that killed the... Um, the Black Cauldron boat ride that the Imagineers designed back in the mid-1980s. And to be honest, what didn't help the situation here is that Universal Parks and Resorts totally bobbled the launch of Isla's Adventure in 1999. I mean, do you remember how they redubbed, you know, as part of the opening of Islands, they redubbed their entire Central Florida resort Universal Escape and then a year later had to abandon that name because nobody understood what Universal Escape mean. Or for that matter, they had so screwed up the promotion of Island's Adventure that people didn't know it was a second theme park. They just thought it was a new land for Universal Studios Florida. Anyway, long story short, Fire Mountain was basically dead in the water by the time Atlantis the Lost Empire arrived in theaters in June of 2001. Again, largely because Disney Parks and Resorts 
especially these days, doesn't build new rides, shows, and attractions based on box office disappointments, which is kind of why very quietly over the past couple of months, you know, Epcot's plans to put a Mary Poppins Returns-inspired ride into the UK pavilion has been tabled, but hey, you didn't hear that from me. Anyway, that is it for this week's Disney Dish. Again, I promise Len will be back for next week's show with all sorts of insights to offer up about Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. In the meantime, if you'd like something to listen to till Mr. Testa gets back in town, the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network has all sorts of shows for you to sample. Among them, Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, Universal Joint with Dustin Fuse, Looking at Lucasfilm with Dan Z, I Want That with Michelle Valladolid, that's our new Disney merch show, and the Marvelous Disney podcast with Aaron Adams. And if you like what you heard today, please head over to iTunes and rate and recommend The Disney Dish. And if you really, really, really like what Len and I do with this podcast, please head over to Bandcamp and subscribe to the show. That's it for now, folks. Uh, Hopefully we'll talk again soon. And until then, you take care, okay?